All right, let's go ahead and get started. This episode is sponsored by Hired.com. Every week on Hired, they run an auction where over a 1,000 tech companies in San Francisco, New York, and L.A. bid on Ruby developers, providing them with salary and equity up front. The average Ruby developer gets an average of 5 to 15 introductory offers and an average salary offer of $130,000 a year. Users can either accept an offer and go right into interviewing with the company or deny them without any continuing obligations. It's totally free for users, and when you're hired, they give you a $2,000 signing bonus as a thank you for using them. But if you use the Ruby Rogues link, you'll get a $4,000 bonus instead. Finally, if you're not looking for a job but know someone who is, you can refer them to Hired and get a $1,337 bonus if they accept a job. Go sign up at Hired.com slash Ruby Rogues. This episode is sponsored by CodeShip. CodeShip is a hosted continuous delivery service focusing on speed, security, and customizability. You can set up continuous integration in a matter of seconds and automatically deploy when your tests have passed. CodeShip supports your GitHub and Bitbucket projects. You can get started with CodeShip's free plan today. Should you decide to go with a premium plan, you can save 20% off any plan for the next three months by using the code RubyRogues. Snap is a hosted CI and continuous delivery that is simple and intuitive. Snap's deployment pipelines deliver fast feedback and can push healthy builds to multiple environments automatically or on demand. Snap integrates deeply with GitHub and has great support for different languages, data stores, and testing frameworks. Snap deploys your application to cloud services like Heroku, DigitalOcean, AWS, and many more. Try Snap for free. Sign up at snapci.com slash rubyrogues. This episode is sponsored by DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean is the provider I use to host all of my creations. All the shows are hosted there, along with any other projects I come up with. Their user interface is simple and easy to use, their support is excellent, and their VPSs are backed on solid-state drives and are fast and responsive. Check them out at DigitalOcean.com. If you use the code RubyRogues, you'll get a $10 credit. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 222 of the Ruby Rogues podcast. This week on our panel, we have Coraline Ada Emke. Hello. Saranyat Bark. Hey, everybody. I'm Charles Maxwood from DevChat.tv. AngularRemoteConf.com, that's all I have to say. We have a special guest this week, that's Sean Griffin. Hello. Do you want to introduce yourself? Uh, yeah, my name is Sean. I'm a committer on Rails. I'm most known for maintaining Active Record, and I'm a developer at ThoughtBot in Denver. Cool. So does ThoughtBot actually pay you to work on Rails, or is that kind of your own part-time thing? It's been sort of an on-and-off thing in the past, so um, I've had a couple of months of full-time, but at the moment, no, it's just sort of a nights and weekends thing. So we getting real close now to uh, having Rails 5 drop, aren't we? Yeah, we don't have an, a specific date that we're shooting for yet. We've been kind of shooting for August up until now, but it'll probably be early September when the first beta uh, goes out. It's mainly just action cable needs to get figured out. Yeah, I've kind of been eyeing that. It looks really interesting. So uh, do you want to kind of give us an overview of what's coming in Rails 5? Is it more of the same or... Yeah, well, so, I mean, the, the big headline features are definitely Action Cable and Turbolinks 3. And then we've been doing a lot of work on a lot of just smaller quality of life improvements. Uh, so in Active Record, for example, we introduced a new API for typed attributes, which hopefully will make its way up to Active Model as there's time to just work on the implementation for that. You can finally do an OR statement with uh, Active Record Relation, which is the thing that everybody's been asking for for three years now. Uh, and then 
just tons of, of small things. So, for example, callbacks, it always used to be you'd have to make sure you returned a truthy value at the end of a, of a before save callback or it would prevent your record from saving. So we have changed that now to be you throw the symbol abort if you'd like to halt the callback chain. And so there's just lots of little things like that, lots of improvements of stability, improvements in performance. Do you think that Rails 5 will be easier for new developers to adopt than Rails 4 was? Oh, that... Uh, yeah, that can of worms. Let's open that one. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so uh, are you guys familiar with Turing School? I've yep. heard yes. of it. Uh, my wife actually just graduated, and I spend a lot of time mentoring the students over there. And I think one of the biggest problems with Rails right now is that we focus really, really heavily on the experience for um, an experienced developer typing Rails new. But we ignore the brand new developer typing Rails new and the experienced developer working on a legacy app. And of course, the, the improving the experience for brand new developers is a lot harder one to tackle, especially without making breaking changes. So I don't necessarily think that it's going to be easier to use in any huge ways, but there are a couple of small things. I've been trying to focus on making newer APIs that we introduce into Active Record more explicit and less magic. And in particular, trying to make sure that they can't as easily be confused by newer developers for uh, new syntax in Ruby. And then one of the other things that we just did was I noticed that a lot of uh, new developers open up config routes. And we have that giant comment which explains everything you can ever do with routes. And that gets makes the file seem really intimidating. And they tend to be afraid to change it until an instructor says, no, it's okay to change it. So... We just deleted that comment with a link to the guides, or replaced it with a link to the guides, rather. I'm interested to hear how you decided to make these decisions. Because you have, I mean, this is like software development, but it's also kind of product development as well, right? Because they're Mm -hmm. your users, and you have to figure out, you know, what the problems are, and then you propose a solution, and then you see how they react to it. What was that process like to figure out what changes to make and what to not? Uh, In terms of things for newer developers, I mean, it's... I guess it's specifically looking for common patterns in things that are hangups for new developers. Is that doing a lot of one-on-one interviews? Is that a survey? Like, how did you even get to the point where you said, I noticed that these are the top three issues that new developers deal with? I, I just spend a lot of time uh, mentoring them. I, I basically, my, my uh, regular schedule is on Saturdays. I spend the entire day mentoring somewhere between five to nine of them uh, every week. So just, I, I, I get a lot of exposure to uh, where they're at across that entire program in particular. Are there any things that make you want to pull your hair out in frustration? <laughs> <laughs> uh, the usage of the word syntax. Really? <laughs> like, I think it's important to understand that Rails doesn't add syntax, and nor do we have the ability to add syntax, right? And it's not, when you're working with Active Record, it's not you need to remember the syntax of Active Record, it's the API. And I think understanding that has many is just a regular Ruby method, which then means that because there's no dot in front of it, it's being called on the implicit self, which means you have to be able to understand what the value of self is on every line. And ultimately, it doesn't, you're not going to go look at how has many is actually implemented, but I do think understanding that it is just a regular Ruby method, you can do regular Ruby stuff there is key to them understanding what they're trying to accomplish in their usage of Rails versus just trying to write the code that works. You mentioned earlier about adding or to active record. And I have the feeling that's going to be really big for new people too, because otherwise the only way to implement that was to drop down into raw SQL. Right. 
now that said, I actually don't think having to drop into Raw SQL is necessarily bad, but definitely Or was one of those main pain points where you really wanted the composability of having the left side on its own and having the right side on its own and just being able to compose the two together. And so the API that we uh, landed on does not take a hash or anything like that. It's specifically a relation dot or other relation. So if you're just trying to kind of inline a couple of wares and combine them with or, it's going to look really ugly because it would be where dot or where other thing. But it will look really nice if you're doing something like recent dot or starred, where you're using named scopes on both sides. That makes sense. I have to wonder, though, I mean, when, when you said that you were implementing or, did anyone propose marriage? Because seriously, I get so tired of, you know, kind of hammering it in myself. Because, I, I mean, seriously, it's such a pain to drop to SQL for something as simple as or. I mean, if I have some funky condition that can only be expressed one way or another, then that's one thing. But or just seems like it should be there. Yeah. I mean, ultimately, uh, most of the work on that one was done by Matthew Draper. Um, and then I just sort of finished up the implementation after it had been sitting around. And we, we had come to enough of a consensus to merge it. And I wanted to sneak it in before we started arguing again. <laughs> Boy, you would make a terrible manager. Matthew Draper was kind of involved. No, he was. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm just saying. <laughs> Sorry, yeah, that's a terrible way to phrase it. I know. No, yeah, the credit, the credit for 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 it definitely goes to him. I know. I'm just saying. Most of the managers that I've had, it was, yeah, Chuck helped. <laughs> <laughs> so I I really want to dig in because uh, you sent us a couple of links to the APIs for attributes. Yeah. And my first thought, and this goes back to the question that I think Coraline asked initially, was, you know, approachability for new programmers. In in this case, though, you said you wanted it to feel less magical, but it also feels more verbose. There's more crap I got to worry about instead of just, you know, being able to lean on the Rails magic and know that it's going to look at the database and do the right thing. Right. Well, so th- this is one thing that's important about uh, to note about the attributes API is that the um, it leaning on the database like that all still is there. Uh, and in fact, the key to the way this is all implemented is now, and I and I call specifically when we look at the database and get all the type information that way, um, automatic uh, schema inference, and that's now a single five line method in a file called model schema. It's called load schema bang, and all it does is. Uh, grab the columns hash from the connection adapter, loop through it, and call the attributes API for you. Oh, no, that's slick. Yeah. This is specifically giving you the power to hook into and override something that we're already doing for you, but now it has a concrete representation. Now, the API that's in the docs is slightly different than the one I wanted to ship, and you can still use it the other way. But basically, so in the uh, docs, you pass in a symbol to refer to the type, and if you want to add your own types, you can register that in a global registry. The way I had wanted to ship it was uh, where you always pass a type object. So that means that when you see type string.new, if you want to know the behavior of the string type, you're not going to have to go figure out where this symbol in this context is documented. You have a specific greppable token. You have an object. It has specific methods you can call on it. You can find it uh, that object in the docs, and you can infer a lot of what behavior can be modified by this API based on what methods exist on the only objects that you're passing in. Because it makes a lot of sense. So you can basically set up the attributes calls on just the things that you care about, and it looks like you can just override whatever it pulled in before. 
So if I call attribute against name, maybe that's not a good example, but phone number, for example, and I want, you know, some kind of typecasting or something on, on phone number, or I have some other behavior that I need out of it, yep. then it just ignores the old attribute setup and does the new one, the one that I called in. Yeah, and that's exactly what the design is for, is that it is where if you want to use domain objects to represent these. And it is subtly different as well than just overriding a reader or writer. There's a lot of other implicit behavior in our attribute system that can get broken if you don't implement a custom reader or writer a specific way. But uh, the other important thing is now the types on the classes are the universal source of type information. So anything that needs to know about how to do coercions has to go through this. So that means that when you use this the attributes API to wrap the phone number column in your phone number object, you're not just getting the ability to use your phone number object when you're reading and writing from your model. You can also pass your phone number object to where. Right. Does the end user have to worry about serialization before the write to the database? No, and in fact, I'm trying. I'm still trying to figure out if you do need specific control over how it goes to SQL or quoting behavior, where that should live. The contract here is that the type needs to know how to convert from the domain object to a reasonable Ruby primitive that the database adapter would reasonably know how to handle. But is that automatic, or is that something that you, as a developer, have to write? It would just depend on your needs. It would be automatic. If, I, I mean, yeah, it's, it's, I guess it would never really be automatic other than if you, if, for example, the underlying database type is a string type, we'll probably end up calling 2S on your object automatically. But if that's not sufficient, then yeah, that's something you'd have to worry about. I mean, and, and, and I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. A lot of types are just going to have the one generic, like handle all everything and do this one transition. Like the integer type in Active Record, for example, doesn't have specific control over, e- uh, over each direction. I do want to make sure that the hooks are there so that if you do need more control, uh, you're not having to reach into the internals. I think it's a really good thing. And it kind of reminds me of the way schemas work in Mongoid. You can have custom objects as long as they serialize down to something the database can understand. You can define your columns as being an object that, an object type that you've created yourself. So I think it's a really great thing. Yeah, uh, and it's definitely not a, a complete solution for everything database-related, but I have been trying to keep the database aspect of it semi-separated from this API in particular just because I'm intending to move it up to active model. Oh, that would be cool. It looks like you can actually create different custom types, and I, I'm kind of curious, you know, so it has like the money type in here, and I got a little bit confused when I was looking at how it worked. So you have the money type, uh, serialize, and then you've also got like a money type that's just a value type that does a type casting. Okay, yeah. So you're looking at the the money type example. So you create your mm-hmm. you create your class, right? And uh, type objects have three methods: cast, serialize, and deserialize. Okay. Uh, so serialize and deserialize are transitions from database value to Ruby value and back. Mm-hmm. And then cast is uh, from user input to Ruby value. And user input can either be a submission from the form builder or it can be um, a, just an assignment in Ruby land. Okay. So um, if I want something that casts into, say, an integer, which is what you've got in your example here, mm-hmm. then I just uh, have it inherit from active record type integer and then set up cast so that it returns an integer. Or in this case, we're calling super here and letting the integer type do all of its stuff. And we're just doing things like stripping out the dollar sign. Right. And then it 
looks like you've also got another one here that actually inherits from type value. So what's the difference between type value and in active record type integer? So uh, value is just sort of a superclass of all of the types. You don't have to inherit from it. The API is pretty small. Uh, it's just there for convenience because one of the common patterns I noticed was that for uh, a lot of types just needed to implement cast. And for a lot of the types, the logic for deserialization from the database was exactly the same as the logic for taking input from the form builder. So it, it just does a little, a uh, couple of convenience things like aliasing deserialized to cast by default. Cast is actually implemented as you can call, as calling a method called cast value, which is not part of this, this object's public API. But what you can do is if you just don't want to handle nil, you can uh, inherit from type value and uh, define cast value, and then it'll just filter out nil for you, so that way you don't have to have the return if value at nil at the top of every type ever. It's just a super class that adds a little, a couple of convenience methods. Ah, oh, gotcha. It used to be called type identity in an earlier version of this API, because if you were to actually uh, pass this as a type object to the attributes API, it would it would just always be the identity type, so it would always return whatever was given to it. So I guess the other question is, is when would you use something like this over, say, creating just some convenience method that does the conversion or serialization for you? Pretty much always, because you can actually cause some subtle breakage in terms of dirty checking, working with the form builder. I guess, but really, like, if you're not concerned about that, which I don't think most people are, you would use this when you want to be able to differentiate between values that came from the database versus values that came from the form builder or if you'd like to be able to pass your domain object to where. Oh, gotcha. And that's pretty convenient. So this all integrates nicely with all of the other finders and query methods so that you can, I guess it's basically just where, but you can pass in a formatted value and it'll do all the cleanup and serialization, deserialization for you. Right. Well, you, you can either pass you, you can either pass in like user input directly, or uh, the other case being, you know, if you if you, I, I try to maintain a contract of if you read a value out of an attribute and then on a record, and you pass that to where you should get that record back. So they, there should always be reflexivity between those two. So let's use the example here for a minute of uh, phone numbers. Some people just use dashes. Some people, in the U.S. anyway, uh, use uh, parentheses around the area code. Other countries format them different ways. Some people use dots. So I can create something that serializes and deserializes one string into a common format. And then when I do the where lookup, I can pass it with any of those formats, and it does the serialization properly there too. Yes. Okay. That is so awesome. Yeah, and it's important to note that, like, it seems like a semi-simple API on the surface, but it actually required rewriting half of the internals of Active Record. But this is the universal source of type information. Everything else in Active Record that deals with type information goes through this API. So um, it's not even just, I mean, it really is just where at the end of the day, but like anywhere in Active Record that type coercion occurs, you can be assured it will be going through the information that you've given us in the attributes API. So it'll never accidentally fall back to the database schema. That sounds like a massive amount of work. How long did it take to implement that? About a year. Uh, six months of which was full-time. Wow. Wow. Did you do it on your own, or did you work in a team on that? Uh, it was mostly on my own. Aaron uh, would periodically have a call with me, and we'd go over blockers. Uh, and Raphael, of course, was very helpful, because I was very new to the code base when I started working on this. But yeah, it's just sort of been a long process. 
Well, thanks to Aaron and thanks for ThoughtBot for any time they paid for. Yeah, Yeah, it sounds like an amazing, (laughs) an amazing feature. Yeah, and the internals that came out of it are just like entire classes of bugs have disappeared in terms of. So there's another internal API that's built on top of this that may be public at some point in the future, but it's called uh, an attribute type decorator. And we actually, it turns out, have several places in Rails today that modify the types. Uh, the most common one being uh, the serialized macro. There's also a thing that is turned on by default that I still can't remember off the top of my head exactly what it does, and I don't think most people are aware it exists, but it's called uh, time zone aware attributes. That modifies the behavior of, of uh, certain types. And then pessimistic locking, for some reason, modifies the behavior of one of the types. But um, we actually had a bunch of subtle bugs where that information would live on the active record class, but not on the database column object. And if anything ever went and got information from the wrong place, it would uh, miss out on this behavior and you'd get weird things like um, your object that was serialized with YAML actually ends up going into the database as a YAML dumped string of YAML. And so then when it deserializes back out, you've got a string of YAML and stuff like that. And so those kinds of bugs just completely went away. And then uh, a lot of the more subtle errors that we had in certain types also, it's not that they are impossible to, to write now, but they're much less likely to occur when we now have this one object whose only responsibility is to deal with this specific data type, and that's all it it deals with. And so the errors in that behavior become much more obvious. I'm really curious about the process behind a feature like that. I mean, do you go to someone and sort of propose, this is what I want to do, or do you spend that year and hope that it gets merged? Definitely propose it first. Yeah, so if if anybody else has a feature that they would like to spend time working on, but they're not sure if it would be accepted, the Rails core mailing list is the place to propose it. In my case, Aaron had, uh, had come to Denver to speak at a local meetup, and we went to a bar afterwards, and I got really drunk and shouted about how this should be in Rails. And then he said, <laughs> okay, go do it. <laughs> the transcription, of course, lives on the Rails core mailing list. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So that's the secret. Good to know. Yes, the secret is get drunk and and yell at Aaron. Yep, I like it. And we have um, policies which are, like, they're documented, but they're in this giant contributing guide that nobody actually reads the whole thing, and so this tends to get missed a lot. So our policy is that uh, the issues tracker is only for specifically bugs. Um, So feature requests go to the Rails core mailing list if you would like feedback on uh, an idea before trying to implement um, before trying to implement it at the Rails core mailing list. If you uh, and then if people need help with something, the Rails talk mailing list or Stack Overflow are the right places. But we have like a specific hierarchy. Very interesting. I got a couple more questions just looking at the API here, and these may have been in Rails four, and I just didn't see them. The first one is I see. Eager load includes and preload. What what is the difference between those? Those are in Rails four. So includes is specifically saying that you are joining onto this table and you'd also like to eager load it. And I don't remember what the difference for eager load and preload are. To be uh, perfectly honest, I know that they get referenced differently by our join dependency class, but I honestly couldn't tell you when to when to use eager load. I've I, I just always use includes. Yeah, I, I usually do too. I was just wondering if there was an advantage using the others. Yeah, I remember doing um, having to use include for the first time a while ago, and there's a pretty big, a good blog post that talks about the difference between includes, preload, and eager load. So I'll put that in the show notes, and that'll help people out. Cool. And is that going to lead to less monkey patching? Uh, the attributes API? No, I'm sorry, the preloading. 
Oh, yeah, I, I'm not sure. Like I said, none of uh, these are all in, in Rails 4. I'm sorry. I think I'm confused. I was talking about the model prepend, which I guess is a different topic. Oh, yes. Go for it. Model prepend. I don't even know what that is. It's a new feature in Ruby, in Ruby 2.2. Oh, okay. And Rails 5 is going to support 2.2 and up only. Yeah, oh. and we do reject any changes that are just specifically like, this code can be written a little bit better because we're on Ruby 2.2, but as we are already modifying code, or if there's performance benefits, we've been um, t- taking advantage of a lot of benefits. The main reason for us targeting 2.2 only is uh, symbol garbage collection. Oh, that's interesting. So it's a performance choice? Well, it's just, it's always been a security problem for Rails. If oh, we yeah. allow, um, if we, if we use symbols anywhere internally, it could potentially, uh, cause, uh, cause a, a DOS vulnerability. And now that's no longer a concern. Gotcha. Yeah. And I, I knew about the Ruby prepend, but I never really considered how it would apply to models. That's kind of an interesting avenue to explore. We should, we should put a link to that in the show notes as well, a link to the, uh, a blog post or some documentation. Yeah. I'm trying to think where we're using prepend internally, I think we've refactored some of action support to benefit from it. There were a couple of places where we were having to do real, well, we were having to do exactly what you did before model prepend, where we grabbed unbound instance methods from the thing that we were prepending onto and then use that as super internally, which is hacky and awful and is what makes uh, our code base look so terrifying when people look at it for the first time. <laughs> so I, I want to ask another question. This gets more into the internals of Active Record, but I was trying to think about how you would implement something like OR. Um, do you want to talk about how you deconstruct the APIs and then construct SQL uh, queries from them? Yeah. Um, so OR is pretty straightforward, actually. So one of the big concerns with OR as well is that it's actually a very ambiguous method because OR doesn't only exist in where clauses. It can also exist in uh, having clauses. And several people actually think that just the method relation.or implies a union, a SQL union, and not a uh, SQL ORs clause. So the first thing that we do is we compare the two relations to make sure that they are uh, structurally compatible, which just means that the only place they differ is in either the WHERE clause or the HAVING clause. And internally now, there is a single class called WHERE clause, which actually HAVING clause is just an instance of WHERE clause as well, because they, they follow the same semantics in terms of SQL. And then we walk the AST that we've got for the existing, the ARL AST that we've got for the existing WHERE clause, uh, look for any branches of that tree that are identical uh, so that we can dedupe them. And then at that point, it's just you group you group up what, what's left on the left side and on the right side, put parentheses around it, stick an OR statement in the middle. Gotcha. So, yeah, so it just pulls it apart, builds an AST, and then puts it back together? Yes. And so inserting an OR is just a matter of adding another node type in your AST. Well, and ARL already has an OR node, because ARL has a, a more or less complete rep- AST representation mm-hmm. of SQL. And just to back up, I know we have some newer listeners, and AST is an abstract syntax tree. Yes. And basically the way that it works is if you look at a query statement like post where ID is 1 dot or post where ID equals 2, what it does is it creates a tree. So at the top of that's going to be the or, and then underneath it, it'll have like an equals, and then it'll have an ID on one side and a two on the other. And this is just an example. I don't know how 
ARAL puts it together. But anyway, it's a way of representing complex sets of logic so that you can then put it back together in a, in, in a different way. And in this case, what it does is it creates uh, SQL, which is the language that's spoken by the database. Yes. Yeah, and the re- and the reason that we specifically need to need to use an AST in our case is because we want to have our code written in a generic way, but st- uh, we might need to actually produce very different SQL depending on if it were going for MySQL, PostgreSQL, or SQLite three. Oh, that makes sense. And I'd also just like to mention, since we're talking about ARL, ARL is a private internal thing, and it breaks a lot between versions without deprecation. Please don't use it. Gotcha. I'm also wondering, looking at this uh, API document, what what are bound attributes, or what does the bound attributes method do? Is that listed in the public API? It is. That should not be. Uh, There was a thing called (laughs) bind values on relation, and it was bad for a lot of reasons, and this is a thing that internally represents it differently. I named it differently because I used to have one implemented in terms of the other, so that I didn't have to, in one commit, go change everything in active record to use this new structure. But basically, internally, it represents whenever you see a query that has a placeholder. So when you do where ID colon one, the actual query that gets run will be where ID equals question mark on MySQL or dollar sign one on PostgreSQL. And then the one gets passed in separately. uh, And that's a prepared statement. And there's a lot of benefits to using those. Uh, The biggest one being that the database doesn't need to rebuild the query plan over and over again. And then we're able to also do caching on construction of the SQL query on our side. But ultimately, then we need to separate out, because now in our AST that represents the query, what we actually have is a placeholder for the value, and we still need to pass the value separately. And so this is the thing that, uh, this is where the actual values get held onto so they can get sent to the database later. And it's called bound attributes because it uses uh, an attribute object internally, which is the, it's the same object that we use to uh, represent an attribute on your active record model, or more generically, anything that has a name, a type, and a value that needs to get cast by that type. I'm wondering, how often do you come up with an idea or something you want to build and, and add to Rails, and then you, you try it out, and it either ends up not working for whatever reason or just being a really bad idea? Like 70% of the time. Really? Yes. Wow, that's a pretty high percentage. Why do you think that is? A lot of the reasons when I try and, and do something and it doesn't quite work, it's not necessarily because it's a bad idea. It's just because the code base is easy to do it. So, like, for example, one of the things that uh, I probably tried 20 some odd times to do before it was actually possible, feasible, was getting the attributes API implemented in that way where the automatic schema inference just calls into it. And a lot of it's just because, like, there's a lot more refactoring that needs to get done before I can structure the code base a certain way. And I don't like introducing code into the code base that I'm not proud of or wouldn't want to maintain. So if, if I, if it ever just doesn't go the way I would like it to, I scrap it. At what point do you decide not to continue with the feature? Is there like a magic number of times tried before you let it go? I don't think, no, that I have a concrete, like, here's when I just abandon it and don't ever come back to it. It's always just really a gut feeling as to whether it'll work or not work. So you get to a certain threshold of pain or of inconvenience (laughs) or of, gee, this is really ugly. Yeah, and I guess, but that's the thing, right? Like, because the Attributes API spent over the course of a year, dozens of times trying, uh, like, are we ready yet? Are we ready yet? And stuck with it. And then there have been other times where there was a, uh, an API that I've been looking at. I, I still do want to support this general concept, but the co- specific API I had in mind for how to deal with composing attributes uh, together 
I abandoned that after about a month. So yeah, it's just, it really is just gut instinct, I think. Going about developing Rails, I guess, is more or less how normal developers go about developing normal things, because we are ultimately just a bunch of normal developers, and Rails is ultimately just a really large legacy code base. Speaking of legacy code bases, you said at the beginning that there were two primary audiences, if I understood you correctly, brand new developers, and then developers who are experienced who are working on legacy code bases. And you mentioned making things easier for the latter population. How does Rails 5 address the issue of legacy code? So uh, it's not so much about addressing the, the issue of legacy code. It's mainly about making sure that we provide the level of control that a larger or older app tends to need. So my rough litmus test for this is if there's a person with, an, with some sort of app that it, and they are a reasonable developer who makes reasonable design choices and they're still having to monkey patch or reach into internals to accomplish whatever they need to get done for their business, I feel that that is a bug and that we are missing some hook for them. Did you guys uh, watch Yehuda's keynote at RailsConf two years ago? No. One of the things he talked about was building upon shared abstractions and how ultimately we're like software is kind of like this skyscraper and we're on the 200th floor. And his talk was about how we all just need to get on the 200th floor and accept that the 200th floor exists. And then Ernie Miller that same, that same year gave a talk about how that's all cool, but like presumably the 195th floor exists for reasons other than just supporting the floors above it. And there might be cool stuff there that you want to visit. And I think a big part of it is just making sure that those lower floors, those lower levels are still there and are pleasant to use and are implemented in such a way that you can modify our behavior in a reasonable way without having to monkey patch or reach into internals. How much time do you spend thinking about the migration path from Rails 4 to Rails 5? Every change. Rails 5 it does have a small handful of breaking changes that did not have a deprecation notice because it is technically a major version, but those should impact almost no users. But we try very hard to make sure that if you are only using public API and you have fixed your deprecation warning since the last year, then the upgrade should be completely painless, and it should just work. Well, and in my experience, when you go from one major version to the next, like from 3 to 4, or 4 to 5, or even like, what was it, 3.1 to 3.2 was kind of a big thing, you give us another minor version update that has the rest of the deprecation warnings in there so that you can clean up anything, even these edge cases that aren't going to affect too many people. Right. Yeah, and then that's a lot. The the main times that we'll make that kind of change is if it is uh, some case that we really do feel strongly is a change that needs to be made, but we cannot either due to performance reasons or just inability to actually detect if you're doing the relying on the old behavior. If for for whatever reason we cannot actually give you a deprecation. Yeah, and I can't actually even think of off the top of my head what those cases are. So we've talked a lot about Active Record. Are there other changes in other areas like, you know, act, uh, what, Active Action Controller or Action View or Active Model or which is tied into Active Record? But you know, are any of these other tools that we use? Yeah, uh, I mean, Active Active Model got a couple of minor quality of life improvements, just uh, things that people tend to want. That are a lot of it was just methods that used to exist on Active Record have been moved to Active Model. Uh, action controller and action view. I mean, there must have been something user facing that's changed. Presumably bug. I mean, there's definitely been plenty of bug fixes. I can't think of any 
Oh, Deep Munge is going away. That's in 5-1, I think. Um, but that'll be huge. So, okay, we have this issue where, in Active Record, we need to make sure that we don't ever allow uh, nil to accidentally get into a query. And that's because for certain configurations of MySQL, if you do where primary key is null, it will dump the entire database, and people still use it with this configuration, and we can't get them, we can't, like, force them not to. That's frowned um, upon, right? <laughs> yes. I sure hope so. I, uh, yes, I, uh, it is, but, like, we can't have it be insecure for this really common case. And so there was this issue where, because of the way where work, if you passed an array containing exact, just nil, that would do where thing is null. And you might be, in your code, if you, if you are using this version of my sequence, of course, if you pass us nil, like, explicitly, then we're gonna do, then we're gonna do what you told us to. But it's, it's more like empty string wouldn't cast a nil and stuff like that. And so a lot of developers who were in that scenario, before they would call find, they would do if params ID, or unless params ID dot, uh, dot nil. But, uh, if the params are sent as JSON, where you can send an array containing nil, that would not be null. So, uh, or that would not, that would not be nil in Ruby, but it would be treated as nil when it got to active record. So a thing called deep munge was introduced in some version of Rails 3, where if an array is containing only nil, basically we, re- yeah, if an array contains only nil, we treat that as nil. And as a side effect of that, we also treat empty arrays as nil. And I believe we also just remove nil from arrays in general, which is fine if you aren't making a JSON API. But if you're making a JSON API, it can lead to some really confusing behaviors. And what we decided to just end up doing was uh, make where a little bit dumber. And so there'll be a deprecation uh, cycle in Rails 5 for this. Uh, if you pass an array containing nil to where, then it's going to, in Rails 5.1, generate the query where value in null, which would never return a value. But we're just going to do exactly what you told us to. Uh, and if you want if you want to be a check for uh, where it is nil specifically, then you can just pass nil, not an array. Or if you want to pass in an array of values and you want to do or the thing is null, then now with relation or, that's a thing that you can do. But I think for the common case, like most developers have never really explicitly tried to use where to be like where this value is one, two, three, or null. So that'll be a thing that affects action controller. But I don't think there's many huge changes in Rails 5. Yeah, I didn't see too many. It seemed like most of it was what we've talked about in Action Cable, which I think deserves its own show. Yeah, definitely. I mean, the, the, you know, the other thing to keep in mind, too, is that the Rails code base is 270,000 lines of code, and 210,000 of those are active record. So the, the, the other gems comparatively do just end less time. Rack 2 is still coming along, and that will definitely be something that affects the controller layer, although I don't think that most apps are going to actually be affected by it, just because adding HTTP2 support, there are very few user-facing pieces of that, mm-hmm. other than server push, where the server's able to, when you ask for one file, send, and you're going to ask me for 20 other files, so here they are right now, and that will have an explicit API at some point, but that'll be Rails 5.1. I guess the other question I have related to what we've talked about with Active Record is I remember from Rails 2 to Rails 3, a lot of people were upset because it took a major performance hit. How does performance of Rails 5 compare to Rails 4? It's faster. Okay. Faster than 4.2. Yeah, so we've got long-running benchmarks now. Sam Saffron worked with 
I can never remember how to pronounce his name. So worked with a guy who's TGX World on GitHub and then also with Kier Shatrov to get us uh, the Ruby Bench project and to add Rails support to it. So we do have long-running benchmarks now that can tell us on a per-commit basis changes in some simple micro-benchmarks. And then Discourse focuses very heavily on performance, so they also serve as a macro-benchmark for us. So we have much better visibility into performance. I know that Aaron has worked on performance quite a bit. The one time I paired with him on Rails Code, it was specifically to improve benchmarks. Yeah. I mean, there's there's really only three things that you can work on in Rails, right? You add a new feature, you refactor to make the code more maintainable, or you try and improve the performance. So we see a good bit of all three of those. And yeah, I mean, I think just at this point, we're all on the same page that any performance regressions um, between versions is a bug. That's interesting. Nice. And I mean, of course, there's a minor <laughs> exceptions, like if the performance got worse in some case, because it got better in some more common case of doing the same thing. But yeah, but that's overall, in my opinion, a performance gain across the different Rails apps out there. Yeah, it, it just it, it's just one of those things, though, that also makes gauging this difficult, especially since one specific benchmark might look abysmally bad. So I, I really have been thinking lately about the podcasts, and I, I want to make them more actionable. I think we've learned a lot of things about Rails, and it's it's interesting to kind of dig into a lot of this stuff. But if people want to go try this. You know, if they want to go see what we're talking about, you know, they can go look at the documentation. But if they really want to go try it, do they just go and in Bundler add the Git repo for Rails to their Bundler and then just go for it? Yep, uh, that's exactly what you can do. Secret little thing is that the attributes API is actually in Rails 4.2. Uh, it's just not public because there were implementation details I was not happy with. Although your mileage may vary and the actual API looks a little bit different in 4.2, but you can actually try it out on 4.2, but your mileage may vary and it's internal. So, you know, if it breaks your app, sorry, but that's not a bug. And then, yeah, I mean, the biggest thing that most users can do is please, 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 when we do set, put out the beta, try the beta. Just bump your gem version, run your test suite, see if something breaks. Or if you notice that migrating is painful for you, and it's for a reason other than you were using internals, you might have some use case that we didn't consider, and we can still fix that during the beta period. But once Rails 5 ships, if we didn't consider your use case, now considering it might be a breaking change, and sorry. So please, please, please try the beta. Yeah, so try the beta means plug it in, run your tests. Do not deploy it. Right. Stand up your app, see if that works. Uh, yeah, maybe run it in staging. Like we're at the point where the uh, master should be pretty stable. If you have CI, maybe maybe put uh, running against Rails master as an allowed failure in your CI matrix. I guess the other question I have is: Are there things that people are likely to run into with the current code base, or certain areas that are maybe less baked than others that are more prone to have bugs in them? I mean, action cable, but that's just because it's new mm -hmm. and. Uh, doesn't have a lot of tests at the moment, but uh, hopefully it will be stable in Rails 5. But yeah, I mean, it, that will most likely be the most unstable part of the code base for the time being. You have no idea the restraint I'm showing right now to not respond to that testing comment. Which one? That it doesn't have a lot of tests around it. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. Yes. <laughs> I think we are on the same page on that one. I was holding my tongue trying to goad somebody into saying something, so. It worked. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, we'll see. The majority of uh, the of the Rails team, of course, has has not. We were not able to see it or work on it before you guys were able to see it. So this is all new to us, and we're and we're just trying to get our heads around the code base that we're going to be maintaining. So 
Yeah, it's yeah. being lifted directly out of Basecamp, from what I understand. Yes, it was. It's it's it was very much a Basecamp production, but it will have tests by the time Rails Five ships. We will, that 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 much is certain. Okay. Are all of the Rails guides and everything else up to date for Edge Rails? Edge Rails is for those unfamiliar with the term, is whatever's in master on the Rails repo. Yes and no. Like, yes, in that if there was a specific breaking change, the guides should be up to date. But no, like, they're not exhaustive and they may not ha- they might be missing information about new features or better ways to do things. As an aside, if you're listening and you're interested in getting involved in Rails, that's a really, really good way to get started is if you see something in the guides or the documentation that is missing, confusing, could be worded better, could be improved. We always love to get more people helping with that. There's a separate section in the uh, contributor guide to how to contribute to documentation, which I really appreciate. Yeah, and uh, if you don't want to open pull requests, you can just open a pull request. You can also just ask for commit access to doc rails, which is uh, a mirror of uh, rails, but we give anybody who asks uh, commit access to it. The one restriction there is that you are not allowed to change code. Although these days, I think most people just open a pull request because it's easier. That makes sense. All right, then, before we get to the picks, I just want to acknowledge our silver sponsors. This episode is sponsored by CodeSchool. CodeSchool is an online learning destination for existing and aspiring developers that teaches through entertaining content. They provide immersive video lessons with in-browser challenges, which means that each course has a unique theme and storyline and feels much more like a game. Whether you've been programming for a long time or have only just begun, CodeSchool has something for everyone. You can master Ruby on Rails or JavaScript as well as Git, HTML, CSS, and iOS. And more than a million people around the world use CodeSchool to improve their development skills by learning or doing. You can find more information at codeschool.com slash rubyrogues. Saran, do you have some picks for us? Yes, I do. I have a couple. One is an article that I think came out a few days ago called Design Sprints, What Are They For? And it's just it's just really well written. It's super concise. It goes through... First of all, this idea, a difference between design sprint and a discovery process. And it goes through like what to do on each day and how to break it down. And I've seen lots of design sprint explanations. ThoughtBot has a really good one as well. But this one was just really, really short, concise, and to the point. And I really liked it. So this Saturday, I uh, keynoted Lone Star RubyConf, and it was awesome. I got to meet Avdi in real life for the first time. I went to report that his voice and his hair are just as flawless as they are online. So that was exciting. And he gave a talk called The Soul of Software that I'm so excited for everyone to hear when it comes out. Um, the whole conference was recorded and, you know, it's going to be on Confreak soon. So just keep an eye out for The Soul of Software. It's an absolutely beautiful, really, really deep, thoughtful talk. And I just wanted to share that with everyone. And my last one is, so CodeNewbie, we finally gave in and set up a Patreon account. So if you're interested in supporting our work and the podcast and the Twitter chat and all the things that we do, you can go to patreon.com slash CodeNewbie and support what we do. So those are my picks. All right, Coraline, do you have some picks for us? I have a couple of picks today. The first is something called Macaroo. It's a website tool that lets you generate um, realistic test data in CSV, JSON, or SQL. Um, you can basically set it up with whatever fields you want to generate and your options include cities and colors, credit card numbers, Boolean values, domain names, Chinese family names, colors, latitude and longitude. The list is super long. Um, one of the fields called naughty string even generates data that's often problematic when you bring it into your code, like multi-byte characters. And you can even create formulas or regexes to compute a value, a field value based on data from other fields. So it's pretty useful when you need to create a lot of test data and, and run that against your code and fixtures or what have you. 
The second pick is The Art of Jim Kazanjian, and I'm probably massacring his last name. What he does is he uses images from the Library of Congress photo archives and assembles what look like photographs of sinister buildings. Um, a piece is typically made from over 50 distinct photographs from the last century. He's inspired by works of classic horror, like those from author H.P. Uh, Lovecraft. I found his art to be a great source of desktop images. That's how I appreciate a lot of art. One of my favorites is a great Victorian house in wheels that reminds me of Howl's Moving Castle. So check out his art. It's really amazing, really beautiful, and really surreal. Very cool. I'm going to go ahead and do kind of, occasionally I do picks that aren't actual things you can go buy or look at. In this case, I've been working on Angular Remote Comp for a while, and one pick that I have is Mastermind Groups. And I know I've talked about them on the show before, but I was talking to my Mastermind Group about uh, kind of what I wanted to get out of the conference and and you know who I wanted to be there and and who I wanted to attend and things like that. And they called me out and basically told me to make a plan. And so I made the plan, and then they said, "Well, now you, you know, you've got a lot of things in your plan, so go put them in your calendar so you don't get overwhelmed." And so I'm just gonna, you know, pick basically making a plan, uh, planning out the implementation, and then executing. Um, it's been really kind of less stressful to just know, okay, I'm going to do this at this time and this at this time and reach out to these people, you know, for this and, and try and get this to happen, um, in these ways. And anyway, it's been really, really positive experience for me. So, uh, so those are my picks. Um, I'll probably pick some of the tools that I'm using next time, but, uh, for now, if there's some major or big outcome that you want to get, then sit down and kind of plan it out and figure it out. And yeah, sure. Not everything's going to go to plan, but at least, that way you know what the next right thing to do is. Sean, do you have some picks for us? Uh, yeah, I'm just going to have one pick. Uh, I'm going to pick the Rust programming language, which I'm going to guess has probably been picked before. But uh, just I've been re- working on a lot of C++ code, doing some augmented reality stuff, and I ported it to Rust in my free time, and it fixed a bug in the C++ code because the Rust version uh, with that bug wouldn't compile. And it's a really cool language that, uh, as there's a lot of Rubyists checking it out right now. Um, there's even a book, Rust for Rubyists, that Steve Klabnik wrote. And yeah, people should check it out. Yep. Yeah, and we, I'm pretty sure we did an episode on Rust. So I'll find that and put a link to that in the show notes as well. If people want to follow anything else that you're doing or see what's going on with Rails Core, what, what are the best ways to do that, Sean? Uh, well, I also have a podcast called The Bike Shed that we do every week now. Uh, so you can find me on that. It's bikeshed.fm. I'm also going to be giving a talk on the Attributes API at RubyConf Portugal and at Windy City Rails next month. I also gave a early, a shorter version of that same talk at RailsConf this year, which is on Confreaks. All right, very cool. Well, thank you for coming, Sean. Uh, it was fun to fun to talk and fun to kind of explore what's coming up in Rails Five. Yeah, thanks for uh, having me on. It was great to talk to you guys. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more. Would you like to join a conversation with the rogues and their guests? Want to support the show? We have a forum that allows you to join the conversation and support the show at the same time. You can sign up at rubyrogues.com slash parlor. 